What's going on, Angie? Um, you know, just drove to the valley to be on a podcast, <laughs> so things are going awesome. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm just working a lot at the store, and uh, I'm moving apartments right now, so uh, nice. a, lot, a lot of work going on. Yeah, yeah. a lot of moving. <laughs> a lot of moving. There you go. Uh, so you, how long have you been working at the store now? I've been working at the store for almost six months. Okay. How are you liking it? It's it's cool. I I'm lot training, so I'm I'm learning how to park a you know expensive cars, which is very nerve wracking. I never, honestly, I went into it not thinking that I could do it, but it, it's been it's been going pretty well. It's less intimidating than it looks. Have you ever seen that parking lot when it, it's all full? It's super small. Yeah. Especially like what you what you said, just expensive cars, dude. Yeah, but luckily, like, cars these days, they all have, like, four cameras on them at once, so That's true. it's, like, really hard to fuck up, yeah. <laughs> Unless you're Asian, right? <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> I didn't say it. Um, what is, like, kind of, like, the benefits of working at the store? Obviously, you get to go up, but, like, what is the, uh, I guess, natural progression in terms of moving up and stuff like that? It, it's a little murky, uh, you know. Some people work there for like six years and then they, you know, get a showcase spot to get past. Some people work there for less. Some people get picked up by a headliner and go on tour and then, you know, just kind of stop working there that way. Um, so there's definitely not like one singular way to like move up uh, once you get started there. Um, you know, I'm kind of just hoping for anything to come my way. Obviously the benefits that I'm seeing is that I'm getting up at a comedy store, which never happened before. I would only do roast battle and, uh, yeah. And comedians who I respect seeing my comedy. Right. Um, any big people that you got in front of that you were uh, excited for? Uh, Keenan Thompson was in the back of one of my cold open sets once. That's dope. And I found out like two minutes before, like I was sitting next to my friends who were there to watch um, me go up in the original room. And they were like, do you see that guy? Like that's Keenan Thompson. Cause he had like a hat on and sunglasses and stuff. Right. And I, I changed my whole set in like three seconds. Cause I was like, I got to show him like the classics. <laughs> and I was like watching in the back to see if he was laughing the whole time. And he was laughing. So, nice dude. Yeah. I was happy with that, it. That's hella dope. Hell yeah. Um, what was your comedy journey like? Like obviously now you're a door guy or door girl. I don't know. Uh, we prefer door guy. Door, door guy, girl okay. sounds like a weird superhero. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Like, um, what's your, like, what was your journey to get there? Like, when did you start and kind of the floor is yours? Uh, so I started doing stand up when I was 19. I, I came to LA, uh, to go to USC and, uh, I ended up just taking a stand up class while I was there. Cause I, I did theater when I was a kid and I was looking into becoming a theater major and one of the theater classes is intro to stand up and I just took it randomly and I ended up being pretty good at it. And, uh, you know, I then 2020 happened and so I took a little bit of a break, but then I started doing like parking lot comedy and stuff. As <laughs> and, a lot of people did. Yeah. yeah. And that made me like, you know, not really care about what people like thought about me. Like, cause I had a lot of stage fright, like at the beginning, but I mean, once you're doing like 
comedy next to a little league game, <laughs> the stage fright kind of goes away. No kidding, dude. <laughs> yeah. So that probably helped you a lot then. Yeah, definitely. I think that it was all really necessary. And then uh, in 2021, I started working at the Comedy Chateau for a month. There you go. <laughs> that was the, the classic. The, the creme de la the, creme. The, the world famous. The Insider's Comedy Store. <laughs> Um, and then they fired me and, um, you know, and I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why'd you get fired? Oh, if you don't want to go into it, we don't have to. I mean, I think that I signed an NDA is the issue. Oh, like, okay. Fair I enough. That okay. I that's signed fair. An NDA. That's fair. You know, it was my first serving job and I was like, it's kind of weird that you guys are making me sign an NDA. <laughs> I don't know if this is what, I don't know if they do this at Applebee's, but I did sign an NDA. So shout out to Felix. My lips are sealed, sir. <laughs> She's probably just going to come after me. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, 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 you do a lot of roast battles and stuff like that. Comic wars. I've seen you a lot doing those. Um, the, what's that process like for you? Because I always bring it up in terms of these roast battles. You got to be like, in my opinion, probably a better writer than a performer because you got to crank out so much. Yeah. I mean, honestly falling into roast battling was also something that was really random. I did not start with roast battle at the comedy store because I was so intimidated by the comedy store. And also like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like in the open mic community, everyone made it seem like you had to know someone to get into the comedy store. Like you had to like know a door guy to like hang out there. So mm. I just never hung out there. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, I don't know a door guy yet. <laughs> and uh, I can't hang out until I know a door guy. I agree with you though. It is intimidating going up there. Cause I've been doing it now for like maybe a month. Um, but the first couple of times I would just go there and like, if I didn't see anyone the first five minutes, I would just dip out. Yeah, it's like high school. <laughs> it's like the cafeteria in high school. Where it's like, oh, my friends aren't here. I need to run away yeah, and hide in the library. You know, did we all have the same high school experience? <laughs> but yeah, so I never, I didn't roast battle uh, at the comedy store for a, a long time just because I was so intimidated by, you know, the, the venue itself. Um, but I saw Comic Wars and I saw like what Miranda and Nate were doing and, you know, it was in Silmar at the time and like this like backyard venue, which was really cool. And I was seeing the videos from it and it seemed like really welcoming and like really fun. And so I DM Miranda randomly, we weren't even friends and I was like, Hey, like I'd love to, you know, battle this guy at like the next Comic Wars and she was like, we're actually doing an all women lineup. Like, could you find a woman? And I was like, yeah. And, uh, me and my friend, Kelsey Loesch, we had never roasted each other and we drove up to Silmar and we were like telling each other our jokes cause we were oh. both so nervous. <laughs> like, you know, I was like telling her, I'm, I was like, is it okay if I, you know, imply that you've had a coat hanger abortion? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> And she was cool with it. And it was really fun. Um, and yeah, I'm nine and oh at comic wars now. Dude, that's wild. Yeah. That's so crazy. Um, do you, have you roast all those nine people? Did you know them as like friends or? No, definitely not all of them. Definitely most of them. We weren't friends. Some of them I became better friends with after <laughs> other ones, other roasts that I've done. I'm like, I feel like this damaged our relationship. <laughs> no kidding. dude. <laughs> it's really, I really don't like roasting strangers. I think that like, you know, I think that I'm going to shy away from that now. I mean, 
because if if it's not someone you know well and if they don't have a social media presence you're fucked mm. <laughs> you are absolutely fucked um and that's something that i've like signed up for before and it's like okay yeah it's hard to roast you know two guys who i don't know at all right we still yeah. won though uh yeah i mean i i've i've lost in other venues and you know that never feels good. I'm definitely a competitive person and I definitely kind of would chalk it up to not doing enough research before and, you know, not knowing the person. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's take it back to USC. What did you go to the school there for originally? Originally, I like my I had no idea what I wanted. Like when I went to college, I got a full ride at USC. No kidding. Good for you. Thank you. Uh, Where are you from? I'm from St. Louis originally, and then I finished high school in Northern California. Okay. Um, and so I wanted to go to a liberal arts type of school, but I didn't want to take out loans. Like I got into like other liberal arts schools, but I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go to USC and like fuck around. That's <laughs> crazy, dude. Free classes. Right? At USC. That's yeah. so wild. That you don't have to worry about loans, but you got to worry about loans to go to liberal arts school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They have a they have a great scholarship program there, and uh, yeah, I changed my major like three times. I was like, I started out as a non governmental organization and social change major because I was like, yeah, I want to change stuff. Yeah. Like no fucking clue. And then I figured out what that really is, which is like sitting in a cubicle, you know, making Excel spreadsheets about AIDS. <laughs> about AIDS. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, I'm good. And so then, like, I fell into journalism just because I was like, oh, like, I kind of like writing, but a creative writing major seems kind of pointless. So. Right. So journalism was really cool. And then I uh, found stand-up and I kept on doing stand-up and journalism simultaneously. And then most of the projects that I would write about, I would just interview comedians at the comedy venues I was at. And no be shit. Like, Here's an article about a comedian. <laughs> so um, I was able to kind of research what I wanted to research and write about it. That's awesome, dude. That's a good way to kind of get yourself into the community. I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing right now with this podcast. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it's been helpful. So helpful. Yeah, you know, Judd Apatow did this. Uh, he, like, came to one of our classes and was talking to us. And, like, he he talked about how he had a, a podcast or radio show. And he would just, like, contact comedians who he wanted to talk to genuinely. No and, shit. <laughs> um, Didn't he yeah. turn this into a book? I think it's a book, too, right? Or Maybe. That's wild. Yeah. That's so crazy. Did he go to USC, too? Yeah, and he dropped out. He dropped out of film school because he, like, he got on a reality show and dropped out of college. No kidding. Yeah. Dude. A reality, <laughs> of all things. Of all things. And, yeah, I, I met a lot of film school people there, but I, like, towards the end, I kind of wanted to study film more, um, but I was just doing so much stand-up, and I was already working full-time outside of college so mm. i was like i just kind of want to finish this degree yeah and i'm still working in the industries i want to be working in and i mean most people who get a college degree you know just kind of end up getting most of their opportunities through working and meeting people anyway exactly and did you so did you graduate usc yeah you yeah okay. i almost didn't i almost didn't uh 
It's like the last semester there was like an issue applying my like scholarship. And so I got a bill for like $30,000 and I was like, I will leave. <laughs> I will leave. But luckily it got sorted out and I was like, okay, I'll finish. Um, and I was able to, uh, I was able to work with the film school my last semester and write my own TV show. And I was a showrunner uh, no with the film school as a journalism major, which was cool. That's yeah. awesome. I'm pretty sure the journalism helped you a lot with structure, when, especially when it comes to stand-up. Yeah. I mean, anytime people, like, you know, anytime my friends, like, work out jokes with me, like, you know, I know all of, like, the people around me are, like, genuinely, like, funny people. But it's just, like, it's, like, clarity and brevity where it's, like, you're not being clear enough about what you're actually trying to say and you're not being brief enough. Uh, like, and I feel like I've watched so much stand up. like my day job is marketing for comedians. So I watch stand up specials all day and then I go to the comedy store and I watch live comedy all night. Um, and so I definitely study like the structure of jokes and that's also how I got better at roasting is I just watched all the celebrity roasts possible. Mm. Like, and I just study the structure of jokes and replicate the structure. Definitely. That's awesome. Um, damn, there's a question I wanted to ask you. Fuck it. Uh, do you see yourself doing anything in like the journalism aspect anymore? Or is kind of like comedy, like your main focus? Um, I made a, I made a documentary once, uh, not like followed, uh, Tuesday Thomas's freak show, uh, that, uh, is like a comedy queer freak show that was really cool. And I really loved doing that. Um, and so I would love to get back into documentary filmmaking one day, but as far as like broadcasts, like journalism and like the news, I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. Like the 24 hour news cycle, I think is ruining society <laughs> easily. And, you know, I think that most of the time the happiest I've ever been is when I am completely disconnected from what's happening in the world. And so I think that like arts and culture journalism is like stuff that I'm interested in. But like, you know, the day that I think that it's just like I think that it's just kind of problematic about like how inherently like the things that people decide are journalistic or like extreme violent like death stories more often than not mm. that you're kind of exploiting for content to put on your news website so that you can you know get the clicks get clicks and then have them see your ads like you know i just the more that i learned about it the more that i realized how broken the journalism system is and also with deciding to do stand-up like I have kind of burned, you know, the journalism avenue or like the classic journalism avenue for me because journalism is all about object objectivity and like not really saying your opinion, just kind of sharing the facts and you can kind of, you know, you can kind of put your bias in it by like the sources that you cite, but it still has to be other sources. It can never really be your own opinion and stand up is all about saying your own opinion mm. and saying your, you know, perspective on things. And that's kind of what I prefer. And I kind of think that, you know, if any journalism publication saw my opinions, <laughs> at least now, you know, they would not take me. <laughs> you know? That's wild how that is though, uh, in terms of journalism and like 
did that um did, did the journalism kind of affect you in the beginning when because they always say you know be authentic and re- when you get on stage say what you know um so did the kind of like the you learning how to do journalism kind of affect that in a way like not giving your perspective to its fullest i think that i'm definitely um i'm definitely more apprehensive about giving my opinions about like you know, political or global affairs, but that's just because I like have the awareness that like I am 23 years old and I have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. (laughs) And that like, you know, in five years, you know, my perspective on something can completely change, but the internet is so permanent that people Mm. can pull up something that you said five years ago. So I don't think I'll ever be the type of person that will be like, you know, live tweeting global affairs with like my opinion on it because I just I just accept the fact that my opinion is not necessarily right um but yeah I think that journalism has helped my comedic perspective because like I definitely want to see things from other people's perspective as well as my own definitely that's a good way to approach it dude really because a lot of especially when it comes to like the po- political stuff that's it's just difficult and I'm glad that you said that your opinion is most likely wrong because I feel like at the end of the day everyone's wrong 5 years from now if we think something's right and we say it it could be wrong 5 years from now and so that's just an inter- interesting approach um so I've been doing like comedy for like four and a half months now and I've got like a handful of shows I'm at the point now where I'm remembering my own jokes and I'm getting some laughs organically I want to know how you take an approach to making it your set personal to the audience at hand. Does that make sense? Like I watched a comedian over the weekend and he was so good at just kind of making it feel like the set he was doing was just for that, those people. And I don't think I either understand how to do that yet because it just seems like you're just you're doing not crowd work, but you're engaging with them. You know what I mean? Pulling them in to your set. What are some of the things that you do to do that? I think that that's something that I'm still struggling with, you know, four years in as well, uh, because I think that I think that the way that you pull people in, though, is by being inherently personal, like something that I've seen like new comedians fall into is that, you know, I feel like at the end of the day, a lot of people want to be like Carlin, you know, where they want to get on stage and talk about like their worldview and stuff. Mm -hmm. But then you also have to take a step back and realize like, you know, or like their like, you know, topical opinion on pop culture or politics. But then you have to take a step back and be like, you are doing a five minute set at the fourth wall cafe (laughs) and no one knows who you are. So you kind of have to start with who you are and Mm. being vulnerable is what draws people in and being inherently personal is what draws people in because I feel like, it's fascinating to most people, you know, discovering something that they don't know about a complete stranger. Like the first time I saw you do stand, <laughs> you got up at the fourth wall cafe and you were talking about how you had slept with yeah. a <laughs> plus size woman in your car. And I was so wildly thrown off. I was so wildly thrown off by that. And I definitely started cracking up because I was just like, I did not expect this guy to get up here. 
<laughs> and talk about that, you know, and it is inherently personal and it's inherently real because, you know, we all have had sneaky link stories yeah. <laughs> that, you know, people might not necessarily assume about you. Right. And I feel like that is like the surprising thing that draws people in more often than not is like being vulnerable and being inherently personal. Except, you know, that's just one opinion. I also appreciate stand-ups like, you know, like old John Mulaney, like where it's really, or like Mitch Hedberg, where it's really just jokes and you don't right. learn about the person at all. Mm. But with that comes like very succinct writing. And, you know, if you're trying to be a storyteller, you have to start within before you can go outside. Mm, true. Okay. I'm so glad you brought that up, seeing me for the first time at Fourth Wall, because honestly, hearing you laugh at that was just like, because you know how it is sometimes. You There's comedians that you look look up to, you being one of them, and it's just like to get a genuine laugh out of that person, especially the first time you see me doing stand-up, that felt great, because after that set, it just, or after that joke, it just went downhill from there. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to mention it on the pod, but... <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it felt great, dude. It felt great. I'm like, those are the little wins that I just remember, like seeing the comedians that I look up to and getting that first laugh. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm doing something right here, you know? Yeah. I had no idea that you've only been doing this for four months. And yeah. like, you know, there is like a weird, you know, inner culture where people will like discount you for like doing it for like four months, eight months. You have no idea what you're doing. And it's like, no, four months is a long time. Eight months is a long time yeah. to like dedicate to doing anything. And, you know, now, now that I'm at like four years, people still are like, oh, you shouldn't even try crowd work until year five. And it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, or I don't know, trying to like gatekeep based on like time spent in mm. comedy, I don't think is like conducive because, you know, people can say 10 years, but like, you know, year six might have looked like, you know, doing a handful of like shows and mics and, you know, being taken away by some life event or something mm. versus someone who is working at this like every day and like doing a podcast and like, you know, you can you can get a lot better really quickly. Yeah, and I, I, I honestly, is just talking to other comedians and seeing what their process is like because I noticed too, like a few episodes in, not a lot of people kind of had that to where they were being taught to how to kind of like navigate through the open mic scene. You know what I mean? And like I said, if it wasn't for this podcast, I I don't even know if I'd be doing comedy still because it's such like a it's really fucking hard. Yeah, and just read the rejection every single fucking day. It's yeah. difficult. How do you deal with the rejection? Because, I mean, four years in compared to four months, that's got to look a lot different sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely, you know, I've definitely been rejected before. I've definitely, you know, asked to be put on a show before and not gotten put on or, you know, not got submitted for a festival and not gotten that opportunity. And I think it's just realizing, like, how vast, like, comedy is now and how much of an open field it is and realizing that like you know just because I didn't get into this one room like that no singular person is going to make or break your career like with with the internet like you can 
you can have like a million people like see something that you made and there is no gatekeeper that can deny you of that. Or, I mean, I guess unless you get like shadow banned or something, Mm -hmm. but like anytime, yeah, anytime my friends feel like they had like a bad set or feel like that they've like burned a bridge or something, that's like the first thing that I tell them is that like no singular person is going to make or break your career. There is no like one opportunity anymore. Like, you know, back in the seventies, it used to be like you either get on Carson or (laughs) you quit comedy. Right. And now like late night sets are kind of just seen as like a trophy where it's like shiny and cool, but it's not very meaningful and it's not going to make you a headliner and it's not going to like sell out, you know, rooms like it used to. And so, I mean, kind of just realizing that like you were finding your own audience and, you know, yeah, finding your voice and that, like, people and opportunities will come. Like, it's a hard thing to trust, but it's kind of just keeping an abundance mindset because, like, the comedy industry is very abundant right now with opportunities to grow. How do you uh, kind of, like, separate yourself from, I guess, the troves of comedy content like as an individual and as a comic? Yeah, that's the tough thing. I uh, Back in 2020, I didn't really have that much going on. And I uh, was working with uh, the Sack of Troy, which is like, it's basically like USD's version of The Onion. It's their satire paper. Okay. And uh, so I decided to do a, a street interview in October of 2020 when it was like very controversial to be like going out and partying. Like there were a lot of like... I saw like in the news that there were like a lot of like college campuses being put on blast because like the student bodies were still like having large gatherings and Mm, you know partying and having COVID outbreaks. Like COVID parties and stuff like (laughs) that where you got to have COVID to go to the party or something like that. Yeah, I remember those. (laughs) Uh, It wasn't like you have to have COVID, but it was just like that they were partying and like, you know, people were like, this is a super spreader event. Like, you know, and people were like kind of losing their minds and like filming groups of people outside. (laughs) Like, look at what these people are doing. It was just a very mentally ill time. And, uh, and so I decided to, uh, like get a camera crew together and, uh, like go out and like interview frat guys at parties about COVID <laughs> and, and they did really well. It went like really like viral at like on my like campus and like, uh, like the all gas, no brakes guy commented on the video and no stuff, kidding. uh, Andrew something. And so And then right after that one went viral, everyone was like, oh, you got to do this all the time now. (laughs) Did you? We want more. And we tried to replicate. We did two more after that. And they just did worse and worse. And then, like, you know, people reach out to me where they'd be like, oh, like, what if we what if we make another video, but we're just asking people questions and it's like, okay, that's just like every single street interview viral content maker video that you've ever seen. You know, like if you walk up to people and be like, what's hot or not? Like you don't have a perspective anymore. (laughs) Like you're just, you're just milling strangers on the street for content. That's true. And street interviews do like go viral, like 
you know, pretty easily right. if you can get something funny out of it. But I guess anytime that I've wanted to do that, I've wanted it to have like a unique perspective. And so then it just eventually like died. And mm. I guess, I guess that's when, whenever you get into like the video making industry, like you can fall into a pitfall of having like one viral video and then just recreating the shit out of that mm, until yeah. the wheels fall off. I've seen that. I've seen some influencers, influencers fall into that. Yeah. Like where it's like, Oh, like I'm an impressions guy and my, you know, my Trump impression went viral. And so now I'm going to make 300 Trump impression exactly. videos. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of sad, you know, <laughs> it's honestly really sad. Like, uh, And so I guess it's just important to just like, you know, stay true to yourself and, you know, trust that like when your content changes that like people will like have your back. Um, like, yeah, one of my, one of my friends in college, uh, Karin Menon, he went like viral for like making, making videos where he was like explaining like large world issues like through sketches Mm -hmm. but then he found himself kind of in a corner where people were like you know like years ago like why haven't you made an israel palestine sketch you know why haven't you made a sketch about yemen like and like i i admire him because he's taken a step back from that and like he's told me that like you know he got advice from a writer once like that like a writer like won some award and like said to the camera like to all the other writers out there like don't be afraid to disappear Mm. and you know it's just like the 24-hour news cycle where like it just feels like you need to be constantly posting and constantly present in order to stay relevant and you know in some ways there's like truth to it but like to trust that like the opportunities are going to keep coming and that like you don't have to paint yourself into a corner in order to like keep a constant attention that you can like go back to the drawing board and come back to people with a, another good new original idea and that you know the people will like be there to view it mm-hmm. But that's but the, the the audience on the internet is so supportive, but at the same time so scary because it's like what you're saying. If you take a different approach to it, they can hate you right away. You know what I mean? And that's what's scary about that. I mean, I guess it's just same thing with comedy, right? You say the wrong joke and then it just goes downhill from there. Because beginning comedy, that's kind of how I started. I would just kind of say my mind and say about politics and the world. And already being not a great comic, that just did not work out at a lot of these open mics where I would just talk shit and never really make a joke out of it. So that was, that that's scary doing as well. But I feel like that's how this all starts is just by like talking shit and it not working and mm-hmm. then chiseling it down into something that actually makes sense. Um, like, and the thing is, is that like, you're going to be able to come back to talking about politics in the world. Mm-hmm. Like there will always be political issues. There will always be very true world issues. And in a way, like, yeah, you need to like look within and like self develop and like develop your writing skills and develop your perspective on things so that it can actually be like turned into something useful that can like maybe like help 
people or at least, you know, bring them joy even in like tragic times. Yeah. 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 How was when all that stuff happened in 2020 compared to what's going on now in the world? Do you see a difference on how some comedians are approaching it or like what they're saying about stuff? Um, Because like, for instance, I feel like a lot of people, I mean, I didn't do comedy, but I, I would imagine a lot of people in 2020 would be very, you know, talking a lot about politics and stuff like that. Whereas this, just what's going on in Israel and Palestine, not a lot of people know what's going on. So it, it, I'm, I'm sure there's a crazy kind of shift in how people are approaching comedy or things that you've heard maybe. Yeah. I mean, I tried to, I tried to tell a joke about just like the public discourse around Israel and Palestine yesterday, mm -hmm. like, you know, and kind of just talking about like how people will like repost like, you know, like dead kids and like, you know, like violence and how like they think that they're helping because they're like spreading awareness mm -hmm. and like how like this warped idea of like spreading awareness like really comes in mm -hmm. because it's like, we're all aware. I don't need my coworker from five years ago <laughs> to be posting a dead child at seven uh, in the yeah, morning. Dude. Yeah. Like, and so I feel like that's like, that's something that I'm working on where I, you know, it's just, it's just like you want to start small and you want to start with like what you know, because, you know, it seems like, you know, with like people are saying that there's like a lot of misinformation going on with like Israel and Palestine and it's on the other like side of the planet. And like, right. you know, it's a, it's cultures that you and I are not a part of and it's countries that you and I have never been to. Exactly. Versus 2020, like, you know, COVID was all around the world. It was affecting all of us and even like the summer like you know protests of 2020 were like in everyone's backyard across this country so i felt like it was a lot easier for people to like you know have like genuine opinions that they can like stand by like rather than a lot of this is like things that you're hearing and reading and have never really seen mm. so i feel like that's where the the tough part of this like part of like times like now comes in because like, you know, I'm, I'm, I would like to joke about like, you know, like the discourse around it, but I'll never make a joke about the issue itself. I mean, obviously it's not funny at all, right? but like, you know, it's also, you know, a years long, very complex issue that, you know, has existed our entire lives and will probably continue to exist right. for like a very long time. And I mean, thousands you know, of years, really, yeah. honestly, it's crazy. Yeah. And so like, you know, you want to, you want to, as a comedian, you want to say what's on people's minds and like be the person who's going to like stand on stage and like say what everyone's thinking. And most of the time that will be like, about this heckler in the room and like he's being really weird and like it's all like the kind of this unspoken thing because everyone else is trying to like sit and watch you and be good but there's this yelling guy and mm. so then you can address the yelling guy and then everyone will be on your side but like something like something like a vast world issue like this like you know that it's on everyone's mind but you don't know what everyone's thinking and you don't know people's personal attachments to it 
And so it's a lot more complex and it's like something that I've been trying to like figure out how I want to approach, but I'm also not sure if I should approach it at all because yeah, I'm seeing, you know, people I went to high school with like posting their statement on it. Like they're the Senator (laughs) and it's just so insane. I agree. It's wild, dude. How do you deal with hecklers? Um, I've, I haven't had like, I've never been heckled too bad. Um, <laughs> there was only one time at a USC open mic where there was just like a genuinely like mentally ill young woman <laughs> who like threw something at me. <laughs> what? Yeah. And like, she was like, she was like laughing, like, but like not in rhythm. And it was just like, you could just tell that she wanted the attention in the room and so I had like a back and forth with her where I was like why are you being like this and she was like oh this is just my thing <laughs> like I was like oh so being awful is just like your thing <laughs> most people choose being likable <laughs> like I mean it's hard like you're improvising true but once she threw something at me I was just like all right you're out yeah. and it, <laughs> it was funny because it was an open mic like I had no like I had no authority to kick somebody out but I was just like all right you get out <laughs> and she did <laughs> And so, I mean, you know, you never wanted to get to that point. You always want to be able to like keep your cool and like not get, you know, genuinely like emotional or like upset. But like sometimes it just gets to a point where it's like, you know, hostile and you need to do something to address it. But there's, but there's been other times, especially when I was a new comic, if I got heckled, I would just steamroll through it. Like I was, a, you know, a Chuck E. Cheese animatronic. <laughs> like, I'm going to do my bit louder now. <laughs> like, so, you know, it's definitely not easy. And, you know, especially nowadays, some people think that they're helping the shows because they see like those comedy mm. clips of comedians dealing with hecklers. And they're like, I'm going to be the wild guy. Yeah. And like help you out, like which is wild. Yeah, that's a wild way to approach that as a fucking audience member, dude. Yeah, but like you know, from from people that I've like from audience members that have like talked to me while I've been working outside the comedy store, like half of them think that they can do what we do. No so, kidding. <laughs> you know, or half of them were like, you know, I'll tell you a joke right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So it is. It is kind of, you know, because it's not like singing or music or something where, you know, you just have like 10 speakers around you and you're just like blaring out to people. And it doesn't matter if they're screaming at the top of your, their lungs, they're still just going to blare. Like, but also people know that they can't play instruments and sing, you know, but yeah. every, a, a lot of people think that they can write and a lot of people think that stand up is easier than it is right. like, but you know they don't take the time to actually try it. And so then they can keep on telling everyone that they think that they can do it. You know? Well, did you, did you feel that way when you first started? Cause I can remember like before my first open mic, I was like, Oh, this is going to kill. And it fucking bombed. <laughs> did, would, did you have the same like, kind of like, I don't know, experience when you first started? I kind of, I guess I kind of did just believe that I was going to figure it out. Like the first time that I went up, it was like in the class and she's like our professor, Judith Shelton made every <laughs> shouts out, <laughs> made everyone like get up and do like two minutes. And I was like mad at my roommate at the time. And so I was like, Oh, I'm just going to get up there and like figure out something about how that's funny. And then I got up and like nobody laughed. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually hard. <laughs> like, so it does kind of take realizing. 
And I still make that mistake, like where, you know, sometimes I'll be like, uh, no, I'm like so good at this now that I'm just going to like, like mull over this subject in my head five seconds before I get up and I'm going to make it amazing on stage. And then you get up and you embarrass yourself. And then like, I feel like this is like a constant, I feel like this art form is a constant, like ego check, like, you know, like amazing thing happens and then, you know, and then you get humbled, like, and I, that's kind of what I love about it because it's like so honest because, you know, at the end of any musician set, whether they were good or bad, or if they were lip syncing or if the whole thing was fake at the end, everyone's going to clap like, but nobody can lie to you if you're not funny because everyone saw nobody laugh at what you said and laughter is a involuntary response and so like there is no cutting corners for what we're doing right how do you like to kind of uh let's let's say you're up there and half of your set isn't working how do you kind of like to get the audience back on your side what are some of the techniques you like to do i mean if i'm trying to get the audience back on my side you know sometimes I'll just be honest about how it's going up there. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a new joke, I'll be like, well, that was new. <laughs> like, Or, you know, I'll just like kind of go into an old joke that I know is going to work. And mm-hmm. sometimes even that doesn't work. And I'm like, wow, I've really lost them. Damn. And so then I'll just do like crowd work where like, cause crowd work always gets people's attention back That's because, <laughs> because then everyone quiets down. Cause they're like, Oh my God, one of us is getting picked on. Someone from the herd got picked out and is talking. And like, and I'm still not great at crowd work. That's something that I'm still like working on being comfortable with, but I've had like great moments with it as well. So it's kind of more just like trusting that it's going to end up fine. Like, cause I feel like the reason that I, shy away from crowd work is like the uncertainty of it. Mm-hmm. And like the reason that I'll go to an old joke before I'll do crowd work is because like, well, this has worked a hundred times, you mm-hmm. know? Okay. But, I see. So there's a process to it where it's just like, okay, I'll try something old. And if that doesn't work, then you're going to go to the crowd work. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I'm doing right now, but I mean, I would love to switch it up and like start doing sets with crowd work. Like, you know, like, People, people said that like Louis used to, uh, take his, uh, his closing joke and put it at the beginning and then leave like the end, like, you know, like once something he knew was going to murder, he would put it at the beginning and then uh, the end would be like uncertain. And then you would like, and then you're so desperate to end on a, a higher note than like, you know, in those moments of desperation, like sometimes like great things can come from it. And there have been times where like, you know, I haven't been doing well and I'm telling a joke that I've told like a million times, but then in the moment I'll add something to it mm. and like, you know, and then it'll become like a permanent part of the joke because it'll do really well. Like, and there's been times where I don't know how I'm going to end a sentence and <laughs> like, sometimes like it works and like then I'm like wow like I didn't even know what was about to come out of my mouth and it was still funny and there's but more often and those times are like amazing you feel like a magician but like you know 
other times, like, you know, it just doesn't work. And then, you know, you rack your brain all night and you're like, tomorrow I'm going to change everything. (laughs) And like either way, like a good set or a bad set, like you've helped yourself. So it's just like the consistency of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I, I tried some crowd work. Uh, I think I went a little too far at the show. I had a show on Saturday, but I think I went a little too far for the second, the second time I did it. And it felt like, uh, I was just doing the crowd work just to to kill time. Mm-hmm. And that that was something where I'd, I'd never done before. And it just looked bad, I feel like, especially like the, with that approach where you're just trying to kill time as opposed to kind of just making it feel like organic with the audience member. Yeah. And that's why it'll always feel more organic at the beginning because like mm. you're, you just got on stage and you're, mm. it's almost like you're meeting the crowd, like, or at least from like what I've seen, like. So that. do it in the beginning then. If you're comfortable doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I'm like trying to like work towards, but like, but it's hard. Uh, like, and it's, it's funny cause I just feel like I need some semblance of structure because I do riff raff, which is like that completely riffing show. Mm-hmm. And I've had awesome sets doing that show, but like, but my stand of itself is still like so rigid sometimes. And I'm mm-hmm. like, but I'm so good at riffing, but like, I'm so good at this riffing show where it's like riffing with structure, Mm. you know, where it's like you still like it prompts and like the audience knows that you're Uh. riffing and stuff. And so it's just like, you know, it's just like, you know, if you're like a gymnast and like you like have like a spotter, but the spotter is barely touching you. Like, it's just like the mental block of like, you know, being able to like do the trick without knowing that the safety net is Mm. there. I see. That's a good analogy, dude. I Thank like that. Um, have you seen like, have you been getting more booked ever since you started at the comedy store? Like, has that helped you with booking? Um, you know, it hasn't. It hasn't. Like, I feel like right now I'm doing, I'm doing bigger shows less frequently. Hmm. Um, and like I'm getting headlining or co-headlining spots. Um, Good for you. but it's just like, but they're fewer and farther between like where, you know, when I was doing like, you know, fourth wall every day or, you know, when I was at the mic scene, like, you know, you get booked by the people around you and like the people around you do have like the power to book you and are like, you know, producing shows on their own and stuff. And I've gotten on awesome shows that way too, where, you know, the, the pitfall that people fall into working at any, any comedy club at night is that now you're cutting into your mic time. Mm. And so like, you know, I did three minutes at the store yesterday. Um, and you know, I won't be doing stand up tonight and then I'm on a show tomorrow and hopefully I'll, uh, you know, do something before then. But yeah, it's a, it's a lot harder um, because it's a lot of late nights and like, you know, it's genuinely hard work and it's like, yeah. you know, cleaning up puke and like being yeah. on your feet for seven hours. And so like the first month that I was working at the store when I was like adjusting to like, you know, a nighttime schedule, I like barely remember the first month because Damn. I was just like, you know, so learning the job and like, you know, I didn't really do a lot of stand up, but you know, being surrounded by comedy all the time, I feel like the jokes that I am writing are like better than the jokes that I've ever written. And it makes me want to like throw away all my new, 
old material and like really focus on producing new stuff. And so like, I, I think that it is like also remembering that like, you don't necessarily like need like five minute open mics to come up with new things and you can still like come mm. up with new things outside of a comedy context. But like, you know, the way that I used to do it is like, if I had like a show, any show, I would like, you know, schedule like a fourth wall open mic and like do five minutes before mm -hmm. going to the show because I wanted to make sure that I would like open my mouth and had like yeah. spoken comedy before right. I go to the show. Like a warm up. Yeah. Yeah. And like, no matter how the warm up goes, like at least I've gotten, you know, the gear is loose right. and like, that's something that I'm looking to incorporate back, but like the mics that I've been doing have been less frequent. And so then I have been getting less booked in like the independent comedy scene because I have not been there as often. That's interesting, dude. That then, but that makes sense. Like you just going and just seeing other open micers who produce shows, that makes sense that they got to see you to yeah. put you on the show. So, you, so because of the job there, you kind of have not fallen back, but like your frequency of open mics have diminished I guess yeah like a lot and like it's it's something where I'm gonna like I'm still trying to figure out how to like find like a balance where I'm like doing like club stuff and like uh open mic stuff simultaneously but there's also just only so many hours in the day exactly with work yeah well two jobs yeah <laughs> wild well there's you know I mean, the, it's just the schedule of this lifestyle where it's like a lot of people are like working like odd jobs. And so then your schedule is constantly changing. And like, if you have a free night, you're going to put pressure on yourself to do mm, open mics at night. And, you know, but if you're not prepared for those open mics at night, you're like, I got to write more during the day. And, you know, there's also this pressure to kind of be your own like producer and advertiser online where oh, yeah, it's like, and I have to figure out, you know, I got to shell out time to make some content yeah. to get some followers to come to these fucking shows. You yeah. know? It's a wild thing. Yeah. Where, you know, the path was a lot more narrow in the seventies, but also like in the seventies, you just had to worry about, you know, if you were good at clubs right. like and hanging out and hanging out and like if you were good live in person but now you need to have footage and like you know and we're all walking around with tripods like assholes <laughs> taping our open mic sets you know trying to get content out of it or like it's it's like it's kind of toxic because now if i like have like a good set but there's no footage of it like I like feel like hurt I'm like oh my god that moment is lost forever mm. like but then that's also the scarcity mindset where it's like there will be more good moments and you have to like just remind yourself that like you know there's always going to be another opportunity but it, it's a lot to balance yeah do you, so do you record yourself like with video at open mics still? Is that a thing that you still a thing that you do? No, I mean, I've done it before and like, I've seen like, I've seen like clips go viral of like people taping themselves at like fourth walls yeah. improv mic. Yeah, bro. Like, it's wild. And like, you know, there's five people in the audience, but this video has like a million views yeah. and then that makes me think to myself, I'm like, damn, should I be recording myself just all the fucking time? Um, but 
like, I don't know. But you also can't, like, because, I don't know, I have videos out there that I posted, you know, when I first started comedy that I'm, like, thinking about taking down because it's like, um, oh, that's not, like, a representation of exactly. me anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Like, um, you know, four months into comedy, like, you know, I, I'm glad that I wasn't, like, you know, or like less than a year in the comedy, I'm glad that I wasn't pressuring myself to be constantly posting mm -hmm. like videos of like my standup because like it does get so much better. And even like, even the same jokes, like, yeah, I'm glad that I didn't like post like a joke that I wrote four years ago, like immediately because I tell it so much better now. But then also it's like, we all think about the things that we post, you know, a hundred times more than any singular person ever does. So it's kind of also just remembering that like, even if you do post like, you know, a new joke and then you find yourself telling it better, you can just post that too. Like nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. My TikTok, because that's what I used to do in the beginning. I would just kind of record myself video and then post on TikTok, but it was more so of not the good bits. It's just me, my struggles with the comedy. You know what I mean? Like I would do writer's rooms and post those things. One of my videos got like 150,000 views, which was wild. Yeah. But that, like what you said, that's not a representation of me now. Like that's just, it went viral because I was shit. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there, it's not because for the right reasons. And I saw that early on and I stopped doing that after like the first three weeks. I was like, there's no, like I can't keep, because I would, all my time would be coming home and then editing those videos. And like, I could have just spent time writing. You know what I mean? Yeah. With the podcast is different because- it's like I'm learning at the same time and then I get to hear it again when I edit and when I do those reels. So it's like I'm learning three times from the same person. Um, but yeah, I'm glad I stopped doing that shit and just kind of focused on something like this where it's beneficial to like for other, because even like I took, looked at my analytics today for the YouTube and it'll show you what people are searching to run into your videos. And apparently it's like how to do stand up. So that's where mm. all of my videos, like the number one search question, it comes from that in terms of the impressions and views, which is interesting. So it makes me want to kind of maybe do like little update videos. I don't know why I'm talking about this. This is so stupid, but like it's not stupid. Like, you know, like something that I've been told before is that like, yeah, there aren't, un there aren't a lot of people who are actually like, you know, showing behind the curtain of like what it actually looks like to get better at stand up mm -hmm. and you know, the internet feels so permanent where it's like, oh, people saw this video, 150,000 people saw this video two years ago of me being so bad at stand-up. They probably think that I'm still so bad at stand-up. It's like, no, none of those people think about you. That's so <laughs> like, fucking true. No, none of them think about it. That's like, so true. It feels so permanent because you are looking at it, you know, way more often than anyone has ever. Very true. And like, you know, I got like, you know, I, I've gotten bad comments on every single comedy video that I've posted <laughs> and like, and it feels so permanent, but like, you know, there are also for any like bad comment or for any like video where you think that you're doing bad, there's also like people who are like rooting for you and who are going to be there to see you get better. And so like, you know, I've looked up like old videos of standups that I admire and like, you know, they tell jokes that I don't laugh at, mm. but it's like still cool to see how much better they've gotten. Exactly. Um, I, so the stuff that do you like, do you tell any of the jokes that you wrote your first year? Mm -hmm. You do? Yeah. Um, have you ever heard my Missouri joke? I don't no. know. I don't think so. Um, 
Well, yeah. One of the, one of the first jokes that I've ever written that I ever wrote, like, uh, you know, I wrote a lot of stuff about being half black, uh, mm-hmm. like at the beginning, because like, you know, write what you know. Right. And like, I still use a lot of it. And, you know, a lot of, I've changed the structure of like some mm-hmm. stuff, but some stuff like, you know, it's just like writing a song where some stuff like, you know, the way you write it the first time, it's just like the way that you tell it and it works. Yeah. And that's few and far between too, but it is cool. And like, you know, one of the first sets that I did uh, on the main room stage at the comedy store, I told some of the first jokes that I ever wrote and it was very validating. Yeah. And it went well. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. You've done all the rooms there at the comedy store? Mm-hmm. Any, any big people that you open for or anything like that? I mean, I know you were talking about Keenan Thompson in the back, but like um, maybe someone you look up to. There, There's one lineup where like it was like me, Laura Peake, Tom Segura, and then like Whitney Cummings. What like, the fuck? You know, like in secession. And like, you know, those big comics that are not in the room to see you do stand up, but I was still like, wow, I'm on the same lineup as yeah. like Tom Segura or like in the main room, I was on the same lineup as Sarah Silverman and she's a huge inspiration for me. And like, that was also like very validating and cool. And, um, yeah, in February at Ontario improv, I opened for Donnell Rawlings. Uh, I actually don't know him. He's a, uh, he opens for Dave Chappelle and he was oh, on wow. the Chappelle show. Um, and yeah, that was a tough room because, you know, being half black, I've found that black rooms, uh, usually don't love my racial material as mm. much because, you know, it's like the classic, like two black for the white kids, two white for the yeah. black where, yeah. you know, the first time that I did it, I like, I had just... I just opened for the Sklar Brothers the week before nice. uh, in San Diego. And so I was like, oh, like, I'll just do the first five that I'll do. I'll just do, like, the exact same thing that I did for the Sklar Brothers audience in San Diego. And it was a huge mistake. It was mm. a huge mistake um, because it was just, like, different audiences. And I ended up figuring out, like, how I could tell the same jokes but, like, just lead into them differently. Oh, wow. And, like, start with, like, different material and then lead into that. Like, like the order of your jokes and yeah. stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was that was really interesting, too, to just, like, you know, it, it's funny because, like, you do realize that, like, you know, the people that are buying tickets to the Sklar Brothers or Donnell Rawlings, like, they're not, like, my audience. My audience is, like, you know... Gen Z and mm. like, you know, but those people aren't really, you know, diehard comedy fans yet. Uh, I see. Or like they're not really like, you know, filling like stadiums yet. Mm. <laughs> and so like it is interesting adapting to other people's audiences. Um, and like I did figure it out, but the first set was horrific, <laughs> just truly horrific. Like I could just tell that like, you know, that me talking about my perspective of my race, like to people who saw themselves as like more like than me or like more black than me, like, you know, that I wasn't like valid enough to, Hmm. to have a perspective on it or like that, like a racial joke about being half black, like, you know, I felt like, you know, I felt like through the silence that like, that like they felt like I was like being racist, even though I was like talking about 
racism that I've experienced. So what the fuck? That's wild. Yeah, it was. It was definitely, but it was surprising. But like now that I know that, like now I'll know how to approach like, you know, my perspective, but package it in a different way. That's so freaking interesting, dude. I'm nowhere near that. That's wild, dude. Because as a, I, a lot of my stuff is like Filipino stuff, so, but which is weird because it works a lot more for black crowds than it does for white crowds. It seems yeah. like for right now, which is I, I, I don't understand why yet. You figuring out that you like your crowd is a Gen Z. When, how did you get to that point to actually kind of know that? Because I'm sure that helped you in terms of how you present yourself and how you tell your jokes, like knowing your crowd. Yeah, I mean, I think that I just like. Uh, I can just tell like, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing like college, like backyard shows, I like feel like I'm at home because that's where I like started to do stand up uh. And like, those are like my friends, you know, and like my demographic that like surrounds me. And so I don't feel like I have to like edit the pop culture references that I'm making mm. or like the language that I'm using because I've definitely done that before where like I've made like I had a joke where I used like a Mac DeMarco reference and like Mac DeMarco does not work. Yeah, I don't even, I think it's like retired now, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and a Mac DeMarco reference doesn't work if you're like, you know, over 30. Oh, <laughs> like, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. <laughs> like, and so then I was like saying like Nirvana or something instead. Like, oh. even though like, even though this, this, the, specificity of Mac DeMarco is like what like the feeling of the joke was like trying to convey and like trying to use like a 90s rock band like wasn't like it wouldn't work as well but versus like you know when I was like yeah in my element like yeah I've had I've had really awesome sets with like younger crowds and you know but that's the thing is that like most big standups, they're like 30 something years old mm. and their fans are 30 something years old. True. Like, or if you're like an older black comic, your audience is going to be older black people. Right. Like more often than not, not all the time, but like across the board, like, you know, and then once you become established enough, like more people will be willing to hear out what you say because you've been like validated by credits or because you're on TV mm. and like, because they relate to you in like a different way and are more willing to hear you out. But yeah, for, for now it's, it's interesting adapting to different audiences and it's, it's also interesting when it when still seeing that it can work. Mm -hmm. What's your uh, end goal with all this? Where do you see yourself like 10 years from now with this? Um, Honestly, I want my career to be like Tina Fey's. Like I want to, I want to write my own TV show and, you know, be in it, but also have creative direction over yeah. it. And I'm, I'm writing scripts right now, but like, you know, that's like so far down the line. And like when it comes to like the film industry stuff, like it does feel like, you know, having like stand up and like, you know, other art forms like under your belt that you can like show right. like for proof. people to hear you out. Yeah. Like, like, especially like a proof of concept as well. Yeah. That. Um, but yeah, I like, yeah, I just really want to be able to like 
you know, fully create the ideas that I have in my brain and mm-hmm. have someone else give me money for that. <laughs> so like TV and film is like, that's the route you want to yeah. go? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that I want to be like a lifelong road comic. I don't know if I have, you know, the heart to constantly be on the road and like, you know, I think that I want to do that for a period of time, but like, I do think that I do want to use this to eventually reach wider audiences through other forms of media. What are you, like, what are you writing right now? Um, JP and I are writing a TV show right now that like, we're going to produce ourselves that I'm excited about. And it's like a, it's like, you know, dark comedy with like campy, uh, you know, campy aspects in mm. it like because you know jp is very yeah. silly yeah. very silly very day. silly <laughs> um and yeah other other ones that i've written before have been like you know uh the show that i wrote at usc was like you know vignettes where it was like you know a variety of like sketches but all under a theme and i really liked that as well um but yeah i guess i don't I, you know i just want to write comedy yeah yeah, at the end of the day. I think you're smart, and especially at, what, 23, you said you were? Mm-hmm. I think you're smart by, like, having an umbrella of different uh, art that you're doing, right? Like, you want to work in film, but yet you're doing the stand-up stuff, and you're doing the marketing. I think you're really smart at your approach with it, because I, I worked in film, but I just focused on film. I didn't, like, really see that you could be wear multiple hats to get to where you want to get. Yeah, I mean... I have a lot of friends who are in the film industry, but like the upward mobility within the film industry seems very limiting. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Because like if you're a PA and you want to be a director, how are you ever going to get there? Yeah. That's if you're what, not directing exactly. your own thing. Exactly. That, that's what happened. That's kind of like what the loophole I fell into was being a PA and like getting my days to get into the DJ as an AD and stuff like that. But like really wanted to be more creative than doing that. You know what I mean? And I got kind of lucky cause I worked on some independent stuff where I got to meet actors who ended up on my short film and stuff like that. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's exactly that. Like if you don't make a solid short that goes to like a Sundance, you know what I mean? Like you're kind of fucked or at least making something where an actor can give it to a producer or help you with ra- uh, raising funds and stuff like that. It's super hard where in comedy it's like, the barrier of entry is a lot easier because you can get in and get out for cheap. You know what I mean? You don't need yeah. thousands of dollars. You don't need like 12 different people to go shoot your short. Yeah. And I mean, like the thing is, is that like a lot of people like will trick themselves or they'll be like, Oh, but if I get this very practical job as an agent, eventually I'm going to be able to help myself become a screenwriter. It's like, no, you're not, <laughs> Like, you're not, you're not working creatively at all. You're helping you know, if you're becoming an assistant to an agent, right. you're on the track to become an agent. Exactly. Like if you're working as a PA, you're on the track to become in crew. Yeah, like exactly. You know, exactly. You have to create in exactly. order for people to trust that you can create. Right. Exactly. I forgot I was going to say there was something about the film being creative. I don't know. I forget. Um, you got any com- shows coming up and stuff like that? And how many minutes do they usually give you now? Um, you know, anywhere from like 10 to 20 usually. Uh, That's solid, dude. Yeah, I'm That's happy great. with it. Um, I I did half an hour in Palm Springs for the first time. No in June, kidding. And that was crazy. And like 
now, like now in October, I think I would be like more well equipped to do half an hour. I thought that I was, it was a bar show. And so I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to bullshit half of it with like crowd work. But then the crowd was really just there to like see me talk. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, uh oh. And like it, it, it went well. But, you know, at the end, I was kind of just like, um, kind of just like saying random jokes that I had forgotten to, like I wrote out a set list but I just had forgotten like so much <laughs> that I wanted to say mm -hmm. that I just kind of ended up like hodgepodging it at the end but like you know at the store at the store it's mostly like five minutes and once a month we get 15 minutes and okay. so now I kind of want to like work in blocks where I'm like, okay, well I have this five minute race block. I have this five minute, like, you know, sexuality block. I have this five mm. minutes about like, you know, walking home from work as a woman, like, and so like, you know, I have like three minutes on going to college. And so like, I kind of want to work in blocks and then wow. figure out how to, uh, eventually film like a, a tight half hour and put it out myself. When do you think you'll be able to do that? I mean, if I put my mind to it, I think I can do it within the next year. But it's the same thing with the schedule that I was talking to you about, yeah. where it's like, I I know that I can. It's just a matter of time management. Right. Um, so you work, you're working at the comedy store and stuff like that. But I still used to, <clears throat> I still see you at like the improv trying to get mm -hmm. up there. Like, um, obviously to get booked at the improv, I'm assuming. Yeah that's crazy that you still have to kind of do that even though you're working at the comedy store. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just at the end of the day that like having a, like a venue behind you to give you consistent spots mm -hmm. is, you know, always like a good thing. And, you know, putting, trying to put yourself in an established room where headliners can see you is like, you know, a way to advance your career but also but also you see people like you know trevor wallace or mm -hmm. you know chad and jt where it's like where that you just get where if you just grind the online thing you yeah. can just get so many followers that they can't ignore you and you're up in the main room exactly like, you know like so so i i still put my name in the hat at the improv but like, it's definitely a time management thing where I'm wondering, like, damn, should I really just be, like, putting all of my apples and creating my own thing and making my presence in comedy not, like, deniable? Because, yeah, working at the comedy store does not transfer over to the improv, and I want to get up at the improv more often. But, I mean, that mic is so fucking tough. It's 200 people, yeah, like, dude. fucking, what, 15% get up. If that, May, if that, if that, like, and so there's been a lot of times where I've sat through that two hour mic before work and not gotten up and been like, damn, like, am I like, you know, am I grinding through like an archaic system when I should be using the new ways more? And I do think that I should be using the new ways more, but you know, there's comfort in the archaic system because you've seen the history of it work. Mm. Like, you know, I'm sure both of us would jump at the bit of getting like a comedy central special, even though maybe you, not right now, for me, maybe you. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I got you. But like the thing is, is that comedy central doesn't make careers anymore. That's like, right. Yeah. You know, but 
that's within the past like 10 years where, you know, you see the people that you admire and you kind of want to replicate how they got up. Like, you know, Natasha Leggero and Amy Schumer and people, but like it's hard to accept that like, you know, that that doesn't necessarily work anymore. Yeah. I think it's just a balance too, right? Like um, you doing the archaic stuff, but yet give, give yourself time to work on independently what you want to produce as, as a comic, you know what I mean? Cause I think that's so important right now. And I think not a lot of people see that or they're starting to see the digital world and how that could be helpful to a one man business almost. Um, let's see. Gosh, there's questions I wanted to ask you. There's said something about the improv. Um, oh, what's like the kind of like the, uh, I guess the road to that, like you get, you do well at the three minutes, then Rita calls you back for the five minute set on at the lab. What, what happens after that? I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I've never gotten a lab work spot. And how uh, many times have you, have you gotten up at the improv? I, I, I've gotten up in front of Rita maybe like three times in the past four years that I've been going no there kidding. all the time. And, you know, one time I got put up like dead last and like, you know, another the second time that she saw me she was like why have i never seen you before it's like i've only been here forever (laughs) um and then you know yeah the other time i got up i got up second and i didn't get picked for it and like you know i the thing is is that i did like my old jokes and i probably should have done like newer fresher stuff that i was excited about because sometimes i feel like especially rooms full of comics can tell if you're, you know, going through the motions, um, but yeah, it just hasn't been in the cards for me. Like, but it's different for everybody, you know, where I've seen people get lab work spots and immediately get a cold open. Right. I've seen people do seven lab work spots and then they have to like ask Rita, like, Hey, what am I missing here? Mm. You know? So, you know, it's, it's hard to interpret, you know, the mind of, a booker right sorry did you hear that it's it's a peacock out there it's mating season oh really yeah we got peacocks all over the place so if anyone is hearing that it's a peacock outside trying to get fucked (laughs) that's so inspiring (laughs) we're all just out here trying to get fucked (laughs) we're all out here trying to be peacocks or spread my wings I do most of my best work at comedy clubs, but <laughs> a backyard in Burbank is also a good way to find some strange. <laughs> um, let's see. There's one more thing I wanted to ask you. Damn it. You can take your time. You going to the improv today? Maybe. Honestly, I forgot that it's Tuesday, but after this talk, I don't think so. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think so. I have to work at the comedy store at seven and I think I'd rather take a nap. There you go. <laughs> but I really want to get up there, but you know, it has not been in the cards for me for the past four years. So if you do your special, where are you going to do it? Like out here in LA or? Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I've seen a, a lot of comedians who I respect get, you know, just like, you know, produce it at a, you know, a, a pay for the hour venue and, mm pay for their own videographers and put it out themselves and you know and there's power in that you know you put it out on youtube and you know it's completely yours and you know no network can say that they're pulling you know they're they're pulling it off the shelf right 
really, really interesting stuff, dude. Like you're the, like where you're at right now. It's just, I obviously I've never thought about it, but it's just crazy how you still have to navigate your way through the trials and tribulations of everything. Really interesting. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a time where like, you know, you're going to get on the, a, a big show or, you know, get booked for something that you really wanted. And you're like, Oh, thank God I can like celebrate now. Like I'm at the top of the hill. And then you're going to look to your left and you're going to see a giant fucking mountain. <laughs> and you're like, Oh fuck. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how, you know, it's a, it's a meritocracy and, you know, my, my stand-up professor, Wayne Fetterman used to always say like, we're all in the same pool. Is that like, you're going to look to your left and you're going to look to the right. And, you know, we are, we are in the same pool as, you know, Ian Russo and, you know, we're in the same pool as Ian Russo and who else? Uh, Trevor Wallace. Trevor. Like, I mean, <laughs> but no, not really. He's in a cooler infinity pool up top where they sell tickets. Um, but, you know, there's, there's like other standups that like, I'm sure you and I admire that probably don't get like enough credit mm -hmm. or who have like a really good stand-up album. Like, I don't think Rory Scovel gets enough credit for like the work that he does, even though he has like Netflix specials and stuff. Like, I feel like Rory Scovel should be bigger and mm -hmm. I bet that sometimes he thinks he should be bigger, but like, you know, I guess it's just like, you got to make sure that you're getting what you want out of it. And, you know, even when you get the big opportunities, like this is still a completely independent, you know, self-driven art form and you have to keep on working and moving forward in order to, you know, get more rewards. Like there is no, there is no, I can stop working now, really. I'm going to cap it here soon. Um, last question. If there is any advice to someone who would want to start stand up, what would be the advice you give them? Or maybe even like a couple months in. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would just say start within. Like, honestly, I find it, <laughs> sometimes I find it infuriating when I go to mics and it's like five guys and they all have their same, they all have the same hot take about trans issues or they all have the same hot take about how they hate their girlfriend. And like. They all sound like Andrew Tate probably. Yeah, <laughs> like we're. You're trying so hard to be a contrarian that you all sound the same. Hmm. Like, and like, or you're trying so hard to have like, you know, you think that comedy is just having like a wild perspective that you get up there and say, and it's like, no, I want to know like who you are. I want you to be vulnerable. And like, I, I kind of know that you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily saying like the things that you truly believe. And I think that like the highest form of comedy is like saying like your version of truth and saying jokes that only you can say. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, Angie, thank you so much for hopping on the pod. I really appreciate thank you. you. Uh, let's let the people know where they can find you on the socials. You can find me on Instagram at Angie S T R O Angie Stroud was taken. Um, <laughs> or you can find me on TikTok under the same username, Angie Stro. Um, find me on YouTube under Angie Stroud and on Twitter, got 80 followers. Let's break a hundred baby <laughs> at Angie takes Miami. I don't even think 20 people listen to this podcast. So well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> we 
Wait, what? I'm just kidding. Wait, what? <laughs> you drove all the way to the OC. I'm fucking out of here. <laughs> well, thank you again, NJ. I appreciate you so much, dude. And thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. Bye. Bye.